Brothers to his left, and he's on his way. 10, 9, 5, 3, cut down! Wonderful try! We have a mole, Jim. Digs like a demented mole there. He just bust through the defence. Just watch this. Good evening and welcome to the Mallcast. Good evening. Good evening. Um, Andy Farrell has uh, picked a team that he thinks the Irish public will love, but it's also pretty much the same team as the World Cup. Oh, I don't agree. But it's 13 of the same team as the World Cup. And uh, Rory Best is retired and Quaylon Doris is coming in for Peter O'Mahony. That's the, those are the, the sum total of the changes. But what are you talking about from the, the the last fixture I'm talking about against the diabolical loss against New Zealand? No, I'm talking about the, sorry, the, I'm comparing it directly with the game against Scotland at the start of the World Oh, Cup. now I understand. Um, it is undoubtedly a quite conservative selection. To my eyes, I would suggest that the Scotland fixture at home, while they are in some what of disarray with the uh, departure of Finn Russell from their camp just before the start of the tournament, their most important playmaker. I'd say Scotland at home with their one win in Dublin in the last 20 years is probably the easiest fixture of the tournament. And this was definitely the place where he could have made uh, the most uh, drastic changes to uh, line up. That would have included, for me, Deegan, Cooney, and maybe others. Yeah, well, I was I was disappointed not to see Cooney in. Um, <clears throat> I've seen a number of you know, reasons advanced uh, for Murray's inclusion ahead of him, such as that because we picked a young debuting number eight, that having an experienced nine playing behind him will ease his way into the game. Uh that Murray's form has has actually got better since since Christmas, and that Johnny Sexton apparently doesn't like playing with John Cooney. Now I don't know anything about that last one. <clears throat> to me, that would be essentially irrelevant. Uh, I don't think Murray's form is particularly good at all. I think it's slightly better than it had been in the past, you know, year. But it'd been appalling. And I can't understand how you can uh, leave out probably the form player in Europe. He's a leading point scorer in in the European Cup um, overall. He's the second highest try scorer in the European Cup with five tries. He's been nominated. He's on the long list, the only scrum half on the European uh, Cup player of the year. And... He is having, I can't recall in my life of watching rugby in Ireland, a scrum half put together a run of games quite like this. Yeah, I thought you were going to say he's the form player in Ireland. And I was thinking to myself, oh, he's definitely the form player in Ireland. Uh, and then when, when you said Europe and listed out his accomplishments and uh, the relevance of that comment, I thought to myself, yeah, arguably he is. The, you're looking at sort of Teddy Thomas and... Vagatawa's been very Vagatawa, good. yeah. Uh, but the, the, that sort of league. I'm trying to think of um, who else I like in, and in Europe. 
It's, Ringer's very good. Ringer yeah. scored two hat-tricks. And it's, yeah, and it's the bit, the, the, the bit about, you know, oh, Murray and the argument. It, the whole Murray thing is almost irrelevant to me. Is just like, how can you not pick Cooney? Yeah. Uh, and then talking about like how relevant are it. Like Murray, Murray's form hasn't been terrible like it was this time last year when he got picked. And, you know. That's not good though either. Contradict, you know, do you contradict yourself? I certainly would have picked him for the quarterfinal. I thought he was sort of playing himself back in. Uh, to a bit of form in the against Samoa and his then game against Scotland was pretty I was good. There going, oh, like yeah, his game against Scotland was mm. good, and I was very optimistic after that. But the fact remains, I watched rarely. I watched the the build up to the the Leinster, oh, sorry, the the Ulster Ulster Munster match, and it's Tommy Bow hosted. It's on Air One, and it was two Munster guys. It was Dunnico Callaghan and Jerry Flannery were the talking heads and they were saying that like, oh, you know, Murray would have to get the nod and Earls, he would have to get the nod and Pete would have to get the nod and, you know, all the usual stuff that you'd expect from guys that you play with. And that like, you know, Cooney would really have to dump Murray. Cooney just electrified the match in the first half, like scored this incredible try, got the tempo going for Munster. Munster were played off the park by Ulster and Cooney's at the heart of all of this. And I was thinking to myself afterwards, well, like if you wanted a head-to-head match where you had to overturn the incumbent, there it was. And yet, so you're sort of left thinking to yourself, like, what what more can he do? He can't <clears throat> he can't do anything more. Like he's playing with amazing, more than anything else, I think, just an amazing amount of confidence. It looks like nothing that he does can go wrong. Um and clearly Murray's just not playing with the same confidence. Like if you look back at Murray's 2017-18 season, the season which, you know, uh, he, he was really fundamental to Ireland's Grand Slam success and even more so to the to the series win in Australia. Like he was he was running the show there for Munster. He was clearly the most important player in the park. He scored a bundle of tries in that season himself. I think he scored eight, tri- maybe seven tries for Munster. It's a high number anyway. I think the highest of his career. He was just so impressive, playing with so much confidence, adding a lot of tempo to whatever side he played for. Cooney is dictating tempo. Cooney has that. Cooney's that guy this season. So um, you know, there, there's a there's an argument which I would make a which I don't really believe in, but it's like Cooney will up the tempo when he comes on in the in the second part of the game uh, in the same way that Owen Redden previously had done when himself and Isaac Boss were playing together for, for Leinster. But uh, to be honest, I think that... Um, I just I think it's I think it's a bad oversight. But I, I'm, I think it's an interesting team. Uh, and... I, you know, I think there's a lot of good selections and interesting selections to talk about outside that scrum half one. So, do you want to run? Oh, sorry. Well, uh, I think the next protocol, really, in terms of the interesting selections, I guess, is the back row. I'm not. I don't really have much contention with the picking of one to five. I think they're all fairly solid. Well, I would say Andrew Porter has a shout to be in at number three, but. Even at Leinster, it seems like he has already 
sort of uh, giving Tyg the cattle prod to the arse to make him to to rejuvenate his form. I I think that it is worth talking about. I like uh, I like I would have liked to see Porter. I think Porter's had a better start to this season than Tyg has and deserves this shot. But I and this is quite a negative thing to say, but I would have liked to have dropped Ian Henderson, who is such a, it, he's to his position as, it seems to me when I read the coverage of this selection as a real fait accompli, and I was going, Jesus, Henderson has actually turned in more bad performances for Ireland than good performances. And um, this, this reaction, or this uh, opinion of yours about Henderson seems to have uh, calcified or have gained more conviction since the World Cup. So is it is it from watching matches, recordings of World Cup matches, watching them back, trying to do like, having having written up report cards? Is, is, is that the basis of it? That's the basis of it. He's, he's been better playing for uh, Ulster, but it's definitely having looked over those World Cup games. You know, we were in the stadium when he played in, uh, against Scotland. He made that amazing break. And the rest of his tournament just went just went downhill to the, like, he was so bad against New Zealand in the, in the final match. He was just, just terrible. And, you know, second row is an effort position. It's, uh, you know, I think Paul O'Connor refers to it as the, the no talent parts of the game. Uh, I just feel that, either. Talk, talk, talk a bit more in depth about the no talent parts of the game. No, it's effort. You know, if if you don't have to have the ball as a second row, you can go around, you can get up off the ground quicker after, you know, having been involved in a ruck. You can run to the next row quicker. You can hit the next rock harder. You can be in more rucks. You, you can, can be in more harder. rucks. You can, you can scrum it harder. Quicker. Yeah. You know, you can be a, a more of a nuisance at a mall. Like, these aren't things that require ball skills. They require, you know, a massive amount of effort. And, you know, I think Henderson is obviously, like, he's really talented. But I think time and time again, you see this guy who looks so fatigued all the time um, and who can drop out of games entirely. Like, who, uh, in my opinion, and I know it's, in my opinion, he never, he rarely looks fit enough uh, compared to the compared to every other single forward in the Irish pack, he looks unfit for them, and he's uh, he's become the most frustrating forward in Ireland to me. I got, and I expected so much from him. I think he has such a, a high ceiling. I think he has such a high ability to play at his best. When he when he when he does play at his best, he's got really good footwork for big man. He's extremely strong. Um, but it doesn't happen that often. He was very, I remember watching him at under 20s and he was in the first year of the five ups that I wrote. So he was a guy I played, I paid particular attention to. And I suppose going back, I remember him, there was a very gobby English scrum half. England beat Ireland quite convincingly that year in the under 20s. This is all in under 20s. And Hendo gave him a big old elbow on the side of the yeah, head. I remember which, that as well. Which I think he just got a talking to back in the mm. day. So it was that long ago that you didn't, it was a good Van Mahina sized elbow on yeah. the head. And the ref was sort of thinking, geez, that's probably eight prick. or nine years ago. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was 2012. Yeah. Uh, you know, he sort of, he had that coming. Um, 
Then I remember he scored a try against Munster, playing in the back row for us yeah, again, and Tom yeah. and Park. Ulster were smashed. I think it was like 38, 36-8 to Munster. But Hendo, it was like it was it was outstanding athleticism. He had the long he hair scores. at the time. He had the long hair. And I think that in his under 20 games, it wasn't just like elbowing the guy in the head. It was like he he showed this in an instinctive rugby understanding. He, he did the right thing so often. He showed the very good physical strength. He was involved an awful lot. Then stepping up to senior level, he showed this pace and, as you say, this footwork. And he wasn't cowed by, like, stepping up to play in Tolman Park or right away. And then he came on for Ireland in the match that we lost to the to the Italians, if I'm thinking of the right match. And Parise came around and Hendo put in textbook tackles against him. Like, drove in low, grabbed the legs, drove him backwards. And there was only going to be one winner. And he, he was able to do all these sort of things. And I thought to myself... Oh, like this, this guy is—he's gonna finish up being one of the great Irish second rows, and he's—he's a, he's a surprising amount of caps. I haven't haven't done my updates, but I remember looking at him even a few years ago, going, "I can't get over how many caps this guy has." But then you look at the amount of starts that he has, and I remember him—he was a long time behind Donald Callan, which I saw was a monster bias from Kidney. Uh, but then that continued with other like he—he he never convincingly got himself uh, into Schmidt's starting plans until the World Cup. And then, as you say, like he, he really disappointed in that World Cup. Mm. Um, he looked pooped coming off against Argentina in 2015. But, like, you know, that, that was that was a tough game and he was a young guy. And then he... But in the intervening four years, uh, he hasn't... He hasn't developed as he would have hoped. Like they try, Joe tried to put... Joe Schmidt tried to put him and, and, uh, and James Ryan together. Yeah. Uh, and like that was going to be his second. And he even mentioned it in, in the build-up to the World Cup. They said, we're hoping that he puts his his best foot forward. We're really counting on it. About Ian Henderson, he actually said it by name. Yeah, I remember yeah, thinking remember at the that. time, yeah. like, that is so unusual. He's essentially called on him to perform at his best. And uh, he didn't. He wasn't alone in that, but it was, for example, it's very rare that you come away thinking, like, oh, Keane Healy didn't really show up in that game. You know, or you don't, you never sort of came, especially Keane Healy, for example. That's a level of, that's a level of consistent level of performance you wanted. Like Roy Best made mistakes thrown in the ball. That's, <clears throat> that's a particular focus on that. But like, you never came away going, Jesus, Roy Best really fucking disappeared in that game. You know, whereas quite often I've come around going, Jesus, like, what's the story with Hendo? Certainly not at the peak of his powers. I think maybe in the last two years at Bestie, you sort of think to yourself, oh, you know, like, is he passed? Because we asked that question, oh, but yeah, yeah. like he was in his mid thirties at that stage. I think the fact that he was still getting on the team. I think we have to call them late thirties. <laughs> partly to do with mid, mid to late. Uh, partly to do with the captaincy and partly to do that he was, he was still a long way ahead of his competitors. Mm. You know, it was really Snow White and the Seven Dwarves or Old White and the Seven Dwarves. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but Hendo is like Hendo's a guy in his prime, and I think with the with the Schmidt selection, like Schmidt did make big calls. Um, they just didn't go for him. Yeah, like you know when when he's been criticised for his loyalty, my go to remark would always be like, "Ask Jack McGrath, Devin Toner, or Kieran Marmion how loyal Joe Schmidt is." You know, guys who'd completely delivered for him and then got the axe. But uh, that's very. That's a, that's a very negative appraisal of, of Henderson, but um, I, so I would have you, to would say you, I stand by it. I'm, he's 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 a player who uh, is not at all consistent. 
So he's captaining Ulster this season. Would you have dropped him in the hope that there was a rocket up the arse? That you, the hope that you get some sort of reaction for him? Or, yeah, or, think, or think, have you sort of washed your hands? And no, just, I, I think he's too talented to, uh, to wash uh, were, I, were I in charge of selection. It would be very much a, a, a rocket, but also like, also just, you're, you know, you didn't perform for Ireland for a bunch of games in a row, so you don't get starts for Ireland. Like you, you don't just get to start because like you're regularly playing there. Do you know what I mean? It's not it's not just this perpetual motion that you're always going to get selected for around once you're in it, once you're in the loop. Like you can mm. get let off at the next stop. You know, the train will stop and you'll get pushed out the door. And the next train will come along at the station and the door will open for you. But you have to be ready to jump onto that train. Okay. <laughs> well, let's get off that metaphor for a second. <laughs> and stay in the second row position. <clears throat> one of the names you mentioned there was one of the uh, victims of Joe's sort of ruthlessness at the World Cup when he didn't bring Dev Toner. Dev Toner's back in the Ireland squad, so he only missed one squad, the World Cup squad. But he's on the bench, <clears throat> and that seemed to be one of the, the one of the reasons one of the reasons bandied about that you mightn't take him to the World Cup is that what does Dev Toner offer you off the bench? He's like long, gangly. He's not explosive. He's uh, excellent line out forward he's kind of an exemplary kind of like does all the bits and pieces of of playing second row but if you're looking for a bit of pop he's not your man so why is he in the bench yeah so that's a good question uh i've a, uh, an opinion that you need uh you need experience off the bench at the end as much as you need uh youth and explosion you need to have people who are capable of making good decisions under pressure on the pitch at the end of the game. Like when we were in Japan and uh, Joey Carby, Luke McGrath, Jordan Larmer came on uh, at the end of the Japanese match. Japanese match. Just going, these ads don't have a fucking clue how to win this game. Now, that, was a, that wasn't the losing of the game. Funnily enough, but I remember Joey that, Carby had the right idea about how to lose the game. <laughs> just kick the ball off the fucking pitch and end this nightmare. <laughs> well, Jordan Lammer had an idea how to lose it again. It's kind of fucking interesting. <laughs> but I remember thinking, like, these lads, these lads don't know how to win this game. Like, they've never been in a position like this before. Uh, and it's a really... Now, I know all situations are different, etc. But the more time you spend under tension... Uh, the more adept you, you become at sidelining attention and addressing a particular situation. So I think that, for example, while Peter Manny doesn't have a lot of pace, Devin Toner has no pace, I think that when you can bring guys like that onto the pitch, you notice that when the, you know, the commentators will say like, oh, here comes Peter O'Mahony, 65 caps for Ireland, the captain of the line, not a bad sub to have. Like, that's a big difference when, and the other team come see, like, here comes O'Mahony coming on. Like, they all know, Jesus, Peter O'Mahony's really fucking good. It's not like, oh, here comes Max Deegan. No, that might have played against him once. Not that worried about him. So I think that when you bring on a guy who has a rep, who's been in different situations, I think that they can have as much of an effect on how the game plans out. As as a guy who was a great sidestep, for example, we we were having we were having this conversation because I don't think either of us saw Sexton being named as captain um, because he'd played so little, 
because we would have picked Cooney that we're looking at a bench and because you'd have uh, picked Porter as, as we discussed before ahead of Tyg Furlong where your bench would be Tyg Furlong um, like one of Henderson Henderson probably mm. Peter Omani uh, Connor Murray Johnny Sexton and Robbie Henshaw for yeah. our, you know for argument's sake and, and you're sort of going like I'd say Keane Healy would have got on the team yeah, I, I think I think that was. The I think sort we of had decision. this discussion. Yeah, yeah we, we, we had the yeah. discussion, and Keen Heat is in it. But you go for all for for the arguments that you give about the experience, but also for the fact that you're not just in the team. Just like you turn up in the squad and you're going to get picked, it's not like that. Mm. It's like you know you're you're now on the bench, and you're gonna. You have to be careful how you phrase these. So it's not like oh, you have to play well so you get back in. So the the intimation of that is this is your jersey, and if you demonstrate any sort of form, or like you're going to have it back. But yeah. it's it's this this is a shootout. We've like we have people who can do the job. So you've got to play better than him, and you've got to show it to me, and you've got to be good around camp, and you know whatever. And that's a very, very difficult way to be in. But when you, when you, it means that you start looking at your bench as you, as you've described there, bringing on that experience rather than looking at your and and sort of going because it's an unusual situation for Irish rugby to be in. In fact, it's it's pretty never happened before. It, we're, we're not even at that stage because we, we haven't got a bench like that at the moment. Mm. That I think the bench is always the bench in in my head, or I think in the sort of the the Chatterati head is that. Oh, you know, pick this guy off, you know, pick him off the bench to get experience. And I think that's what, I think that's what Schmidt did. I think that's yeah, what a lot absolutely. of coaches do. They sort of, they pad out guys' numbers by picking young fellas on the bench and they come on for 12. garbage minutes yeah. or they come on for a little bit longer. Um, or there's some sort of, you know, like you get 40 minutes against the Italians when it's like a bonus point is in the bag and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um which is, which is the sort of padding you can do now that it's a 23-man game. But then, as you say, when you're in a situation where the bench really matters, when you're in a cup match uh, and you want guys to be making a big difference and you've been constrained by the size of your squad, like you can only pick 30 men. So we're talking about the World Cup here. Yeah. Um, the bench takes on a different a different sort of shade, a different hue. Um, and that's... Does that address the Devon Toner? Like, I, I don't... Well, I would have I, I, like personally speaking, I wouldn't have picked Sexton as captain. And if they're not going to, I would have had James Ryan. But if you're not going to give it to James Ryan, I'd have given it to Omani because I'd have gone, well, like, Omani's obviously the best captain in the squad. Sexton isn't. He's not even the second best. Um, which means I'd have just started Omani for to make it. He'd have been Mike Brearley. He just would have started because he's a good captain. And I'm sort of going, and I started him on the open side. And like Josh. Josh is playing great at the moment, but, you know, at international level, he he doesn't have the physicality and the sort of the track record, in my in my opinion, as CJ has. So I'd have picked Doris, Stander and Amani in order to get Amani to be the captain. And I'd have picked Josh off the bench because, you know, the sort of CJ can play eight, Amani can play six, uh, and Josh changes up the pace of the game. I, I kind of I, like I, I'd have picked Dev for the same reason that mm. you know you you want to win your set pieces and if you're going to have Dev in this like that's the point of having Dev in the squad like um, is is to guarantee yourself that lineup ball to allow you to put pressure on the opposition team and bringing him off the bench that's I, also I, I allow a really I, good work rate he's really he's good really good work rate Rick Kinsler wrote a couple of articles after both our 
wins against New Zealand in 2016 and 2018, highlighting Dev Toner's work rate. I think in I think in both games he had the most involvements in rucks, the most involvements out of any Irish player, which for somebody who's like six eleven and nineteen, almost twenty stone, is extremely good work rate and extremely good mobility. Uh, very good mauler, particularly good mauler, and obviously a very good set piece like this idea that gained traction because Joe Schmidt said it now. I'm not going to gainsay Joe Schmidt's. Uh, knowledge of the scrummaging, but like the facts are that Devon Toner played on the tight head side in the 38 3 win over South Africa. That's where he scrummaged, you know, scrummaged at tight head against uh, New Zealand in 2016, and he scrummaged at tight head against South Africa in the summer of 2016 when he won man of the match uh, in the game that we won. So he may not be the world's greatest tight head scrummager. But the fact is, he's done jobs in really big wins against big scrummaging sides for Ireland. Okay, well, let's just go back a little bit um, to the point that you... One of the points that you were making about... And sort of chimes in with what you were saying about bringing experience off the bench and you're saying about clutch moments and bringing know-how to win on. This is Scotland at home. We should be bringing on the best ball-handling attacking back row, Max Deegan, rather than Peter O'Mahony. No. No, I wouldn't. Uh, like, I sort of like the idea of, of playing on form and also that you, should, you shouldn't just be handing out. I don't see the point of change for change's sake. Uh, it's quite a dangerous thing, a hostage fortune saying that. But I like the idea of, like, the best guys getting picked, like the guys who are playing the best at the moment getting picked. And it's a hard balance to strike between fellows who have performed for you at different times and the guys who are really, like... I would pick Cooney on that basis, yeah, as, 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 we, as we've said. Max but Deegan's picking up Man of the Match awards every time he plays. Max Deegan has... Yeah. He's, and as you and said, scores like tries, he, he's a brilliant ball handler, brilliant runner, and like he never lets... He hasn't let anyone down. He's, had, like, he's hardly no, put I a... I agree, f- but uh, selection isn't... You don't... It's an art, not a science. It's not based on... Because I picked such and such a person, I have to pick such a person for the same reason. You know, he's in form. Like, it's, it's, it is... It is an art. It is like uh, untrammeled by sort of uh, what's by consistency. You pick players and then you put them in a team. You say, how is his team going to work together? For me, I think like he was going to start one new back row and he's gone with Doris instead of Deegan. I didn't think that it, there was going to be Doris and then and then Deegan on the, on the bench. I felt he was going to, I didn't, I didn't, I always felt he was going to start Doris in this one. I have to say, I agree. I'm, I'm only arguing that mm. case. I got the impression that for some reason everyone had decided Doris was Ireland's new number eight about four weeks ago. After the matches against Northampton and against Leon, uh, you know, when, when that pool was very competitive. Like, Deegan played at number eight for, it was the home match against Leon for Leinster? He played in both matches against Leon, actually, at number eight. And he, he came did, on. He did, he did. On again, yeah, yeah, and yeah. He came on against uh, Benetton after five minutes. Uh, Doris got HIA'd, and he was outstanding in at least one of those matches. Now, he, I think he made mistakes away to Liam, which we talked about. But uh, like, look, you go back to the Ulster Monster match. Amani, Amani was Amani was absolutely anonymous. Um, so, like, he's not cast iron to be in based on form and all of that sort of stuff. But but he has been dropped. 
Like he's been dropped. Yeah, he's been dropped. He's been dropped from the bench. But at the same stage, like I'm talking about making captain. So like I wouldn't. I think you it's, just don't like Sexton as a captain more than you like the other options. I don't. Yeah, you've you've always been. Uh, I think you've been critical of his uh, his sort of hot headedness or his aggressiveness. I think maybe, and then he, he he's not he's another sort of sang froid necessary to be captain. I think, but you've always thought about it, thought that. I think. Yeah, I think some of the like I've seen some of the decisions he makes in matches, and I think they're headstrong. But I think they're wrong and headstrong. Like they're, they're never going to come right. Or they, they he's got a very they're, they're bad decisions, and then he really sticks to his guns. I think he's dogmatic about it. I think his body language is very poor. I think his demeanor around the place is very poor. Like he can talk about being very competitive, but like it's intimidating if you're like Sexton's thirty four. You know, so like you've got guys in the team who've grown up watching him play, and now they're in there. Like they're they're not going to say boo to. Um, whereas I, like I look at Alan Wynne Jones and I think, Jesus, he's like, he's like the, the paterfamilias of yeah. the Welsh team. Like he, he makes, he makes he everyone a foot taller. Like God in the Sistine Chapel painting. <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> he makes everyone look tall. Like he makes everyone walk taller. He makes everyone better. Like it's, it's a real gift as a captain. So I just, I don't see that about Sexton at all. That's a, like I, and I wouldn't feel as strongly about Sexton as captain. And I, I'm actually like a real fan of sex, a huge fan of Sexton as a player. It's a fucking massive fan. But um, but when you make the comparison with him as a captain against Alan Wynne-Jones, or previous captains of Ireland, like O'Connell, um, or Best, you know, who was very avuncular. Like Best, I heard this story about Roy Best, right? And I'm not sure if this is true or not, but you know, like he's 37. So when he started playing, they had like pockets in the shorts. And he always had Werder's originals in his pockets. <laughs> uh, but that's it. That's, you know, that's a reasonable point. Uh, the other thing I was saying, sorry, this is was skipping backwards and forth a little bit about having experience on the bench. That allows you to bring in form players into the starting 15. Yes, good point. You know, so you use your experience on the bench you don't have to go around calling all the experience in your team to allow a form player to start. You and because I think experiences is, you know, there's there's two arguments. At the end of a tight game, you'd rather have experience rather than explosiveness. And then against that is at the end of a at the end of the game, players are tiring. There's more room for running players to come off the bench. You know, a younger, faster player. And the Six Nations, I think, it's it's going to be in because of the nature of of the weather, because of the nature of the tournament, a lot of familiarity. I think it makes an awful lot of sense to have experience coming off the bench. And it also, in the longer term, it makes you have a stronger overall team and squad. If you've got guys who have started in the Six Nations, you know, rather than just like had, you know, 12 appearances off the bench, for example. There's a big difference in starting in the Six Nations. When you read players' biographies, you, that sort of comes through, how different it is to sit on the bench for players, especially players who are used to starting. They say when they're on the bench, they're going, what a weird day that is. You know, and she's not used to being on the bench. Like, you don't know when, when you're going to come on to the pitch. Like, you don't know. You go and warm up, and then you go and sit down and wear a jacket. For like, you could be wearing a jacket for the next 90 minutes or something. So I think that the more it, that you reward form players, that increases competition, but you also at the same time that you broaden 
the number of players you can realistically pick in a given fixture. That, that That's a very interesting point. That is a very, very interesting point. So the idea that you could pick John Cooney knowing that you've got Conor Murray and no one's going to think anything of it. Like if you bring Cooney off after 55 minutes, you've started him. And you're bringing, like you're bringing Murray on for most of the half. But it's it's not that you're dismissing Cooney. It's like it's Conor Murray. Like you've, you're, you're entitled to bring him on at half time if you want. Um, That's why I thought this was a missed, uh, particular missed opportunity. Is that why you thought it was? No, in particular because it's Scotland at home. And I think as the pressure ramps up in this tournament, our next game is a home against Wales. We're obviously Grand Slam champions, a much better team than Scotland. And then we're away to England in two weeks after that. And I think the <clears throat> urge will be amongst the coaching ticket to become more and more conservative from this point onwards. Perhaps, but I, I think if... if I think you're coming from a different point than I understand what Hugo's saying. Like, what, how I understand what you're saying is that it, it's quite irrelevant who the opposition is. Like, it's the Six Nations, it's the whole event, it's the fact that... There's going to be people who are looking for tickets. There's going to be like friends and family looking for tickets. There's going to like you're, you're not playing in Australia or New Zealand, which is like twelve time zones away, and you know a really big flight away, where like your parents are probably going to come and watch you if you're playing international rugby, or if you're like you're getting early caps, or like you know even if you're getting like fifty caps. But there's a huge media attention. It's in the t- same time zone. Like you're on the phone to people. There's text messages from people. Like it's it's much more in the consciousness. Um, aside from what the rugby is like, you know, just 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 the environment is very different. That like it doesn't matter if it's the Italians at home or if it's England and Twickenham. That you make this your selection policy. That if a guy is in better form, you can pick the experienced guy on the bench, and you give yourself the opportunity to bring experience off the bench. So you're broadening your squad. You're genuinely broadening your squad by like playing guys from the start, and you have a lot of confidence in your bench that if Conor Murray comes on. Like, what can go wrong? It's Conor Murray. Mm. Whereas if you're bringing on Luke McGrath and a must-win match against Japan, you're just slapping your head going, we're fucked. So you're saying basically, instead of if the number two dislodges the number one, it's not like the number one just gets thrown away. It's no, like no, 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 no. It just, yeah. just goes yeah. down to number two. Like, it isn't, it isn't a penalty. It's yeah. just like, and it's a situation that we've never had in Irish rugby. I, I'd have, we'd have often looked at England and France and kind of said to ourselves, okay, barring like four players for England, I don't even know if the French have anything comparable, that you, you could pick a second 15 and they'd be as good. Jeez. Well, I look at the French you know, back row. The French the, back row doesn't I, have a Gordon or a Toria in it. We'll get to them later on. Sorry. Yeah, like, you know, <laughs> um, yeah, not to go all Joe Schmidt and list all the French guys. But, oh, wait, these are the but, guys we have to uh, prepare for them. <laughs> whereas Ireland don't have that. Like, you know, for, for most of... Our lives watching rugby. So basically for all the, the, the modern era and even before that, we barely had 15. And then we got to a stage where we had 15 players. And occasionally like we'd have a number of players who would be in a world 15. So yeah, you look at, and then you look at that sort of description of a world-class player as he in like the best three of his position. Um, that the English coaches in particular, like Clive Woodward and, and Stuart Lancaster, really like, which I think is a really good way so of, of categorizing it, that you go, this guy is world class. And in recent years, we've had a few of those guys. In fact, we think, you know, we've had more than one or two, which I think Ireland might have always had. You know, we've had a sizable enough cabal when guys have been in form to make us really, really competitive and win grand slams and win championships and all that sort of good stuff. But 
now you're going, like we're in a situation with Robbie Henshaw on the bench and you kind of go, yeah, well, do you agree or disagree? It's not a massively contentious call. And you'd, you'd like it to get to the stage where because of the nature of Irish rugby, because there's four professional teams, um, because the players are managing, you know, the player welfare program, that you would have a 23, which is pretty much the same. Like you'd like to have... You'd like to be the difference to be that your best players are by far and away your best players. Like that you've got five or six guys who are world-class who are definitely getting on the team rather than, you know, five or six guys who their like fan base think that, the, you yeah. know, and then rather than having like six guys on the bench who are just patently never going to get picked to start, they just have to be on the bench. Well, we played, we played uh, like a world-encompassing tournament not long ago. And on the basis of our performances in that, and the basis of the performances of all the other teams in that, and on the basis of taking world class as meaning the top three players in your position, we don't have a single world class player this season. Gary Ringos? No, I wouldn't say top three in his. On the basis of the World Cup? Hmm. You know, you've yeah. got Kurdrani. Um. Uh, Manu Tualagi and uh, Rodrada. Wasn't he 13 for Fiji? Oh, or was he was a winger. A winger. But nonetheless, I, th- I think I think he's the only guy mm. in the Irish team who's in contention. You could argue maybe James Ryan if you're picking six seconds, but probably not. I don't want to go through the list now either. But, uh, so look, I, I agree with you. I think, it's, I think it's a good point. I think it's a good way of looking at it. Um. I guess the, just to move out through the last numbers, the, the last bone of contention was that Robbie Henshaw was, uh, for me, maybe just possibly unsuited to playing 23 in that when he comes on, unless he's just replacing one of the centres, it just causes an awful lot of shuffling around, which is, yeah, like, it's undesirable. I think just basically the guy who plays 23, ideally, is a guy who can play 11 I 13, thought, 14, and 15. I thought that the 15 was going to be uh, Will Addison. Like I was, I was, the 23 or the 15? No, the 15. I was really convinced that it was going to be Addison. Like, absolutely convinced. Uh, I'm really impressed with Addison. <laughs> I've, and I think that he is uh, the player who does give Ireland the second distributor. He plays. He's playing at the moment with an enormous amount of confidence and brio. Uh, for Ulster he's also stepped up his his physicality now I know he got a, a ban for a high tackle but he has put in his he's, he's, he's a reasonably he's quite a fragile player he picks up a lot of injuries but he's been very physical this season as well so maybe that's a contributing factor uh, but I felt that his ability he's played uh, from 11 through to 15 all the positions for sale he's been a goal kicker uh, he's a lovely balance runner he passes beautifully off both hands he's got an incredible offloading game so I felt he was definitely going to be there I think the selection of Henshaw is uh, in the 23 so in, in the position that he's playing so you sort of go you got to pick I think Ringrose is the, the form back right so he's definitely getting in so then it becomes a shootout between well three of them really like McCloskey mm. who, he, who he didn't pick in his original squad so you can discount him Fairly or not, uh, Bundy and Robbie Henshaw, which 
it's a good position to be in because you always want them to be fit and to be competing against each other. So it makes our centre cohort the, the strongest mm. bit of our squad. Yeah. So he, he's gone with Bundy and you go, right, fair enough, right? So I, I, I go, fair enough. The difference, the reason that's such an interesting, such a signature pick to me is that I was thinking about it today and Joe Schmidt was risk averse. Whereas Farrell is risk-seeking. So this, this is the way I define it. And you sort of, you have to be one side of the divide or not. And then it's just a matter of how much you are. So in my opinion, Joe Schmidt would never have picked uh, a 23 where he didn't have every eventuality covered. Like he just, he, co- he just couldn't bring himself to do it. It goes against every single fiber of his rugby beliefs. Whereas Farrell's kind of gone, bring pop, like there's more up to me having Robbie on the bench. Handle the downside. They're, like they're playing the outside backs, they can just play eighty minutes. Like it's, it's not the second row, you know. And this is the same sort of rationale as having a six-two split. You just go, who cares? Like this, it's not like playing tight-headed international rugby. Mm-hmm. Playing in the wings, you might touch. You know, not, you know, might not being blasé about it, but like you know, the GPS numbers are like you know that they probably can't play eighty minutes if they have to, and it just means you have a chance to to really change it rather than picking Will Addison ahead of Robbie Henshaw because he's he's more versatile in, in case that something really goes wrong. So that's the difference between being risk-averse and risk-seeking. Mm. And I even, like, I thought the quote that Farrell gave is, Ireland want to be a team that the Irish public love watching. That resonated with me immediately because I wrote about it. In, and I was trying to look for the article. Well, I found the article. And I, the, the article I wrote was 7th of November, 2013. And it was Give It a Last Joe. It was it was on the blog. It was... Was that before or after his first game? It must have been before. It was before his first game. Yeah, before so it was, it was the eve of his... Yeah, before the Samoa match. And you go into... The, there's a quote from Schmidt here, which I'm going to read out. So it says, what Schmidt wants from his team is, quote, a little bit of cohesion, a little bit of clarity, a priority list of what we must do, of what we would like to be able to do, and what would be a bonus. And we try to focus on what are the real key things for us. A big part of that is being very collective in whatever we do. And I just think of, like, how thoughtful that is, how precise that is, how detailed that is compared to how emotional Farrell is. Okay, so... I go back to that idea of like the way that Schmidt picks his team, the way he approaches rugby, the way he coaches his team is to make your team difficult to play against, to limit any opportunities for the opposition, uh, like to keep the ball. Like uh, you know, we would have made the comparison years and years ago about Schmidt's Leinster team, basically playing tiki-taka, like playing, just keeping the ball. They're not that enterprising. Like, you know, certainly they, they, they scored a lot of tries, but for a lot of the time they played like Ireland, except you know, with probably comparably a better squad and with more cohesion because they train together more frequently. And a lot of the, but the modus operandi was just like keeping the ball away from the opposition. A bit like, you know, defending by having the ball, mm-hmm. like the Spanish team of, of the sort of, the sort of 2010 Spanish team. Yeah. Um, and then what I said in the rest of that article was that what I really want to see is an Irish team playing a style that not only suits the players but gets the country excited which to me really resonated with that idea of want a team want to be a team that the Irish public love watching so like Farrell is all emotion and he's he's that that risk-seeking behavior so that is that is the biggest single difference then you go okay well like what's what comes out of that and what comes out of that is that Ireland were very difficult to beat under Joe Schmidt and as a consequence of that, 
we won three championships, we beat the All Blacks, we won a series down in Australia, like all the things that you can go through. But the downside is that your your upside is capped. Like the, by not taking risks and by being very conservative, by being implicitly a conservative selector, there's only so high you can go. So it means that you always have to be performing at a fairly optimum level, which the team is built to do, by the way, you know, um, to make yourself difficult to beat. Whereas the Farrell thing is you can really hit the heights. And as an Irish team, you probably, you need to hit the heights because you don't have the wealth of resources that France or England have, you don't have, or like New Zealand have, uh, or South Africa have. But the downside is that you leave yourself open to being beaten more frequently or being beaten by bigger margins. And that's going to be the trade-off. Do you think that that description... Uh, a team that the home crowd loves and a team that <clears throat> has a uh, sort of trades off bigger risks and bigger bigger risks for bigger rewards. Do you think that aptly describes the Welsh team of the last five, six years? No. Teams love, uh, fans love a winner. Like Wales, they're most of their rugby in the last six nations, which they won with a grand slam. It's very ordinary. Mm-hmm. Fans love a winner. And the, world, the Rugby World Cup, they were also pretty dogged great boring game as well. against Great game against Australia. Oh, yeah. A lot of shit, though. Um, so, was, listen, the, the thing that uh, makes, well, more, it, makes, more, that makes so, it popular is winning games. But more important than that, then, is the Welsh... Uh, would you describe them as being... Like, considering how many games they lost against Australia, never beaten New Zealand in that time, and had... I guess, on average, a worse uh, finishing position than Joe Schmidt over the last six years. But oh, I'm, sorry, I'm confusing the eras here. But, you know, they won so many Grand Slams. They won all four Grand Slams in the last 15 years. Mm, they won t- yeah, they did. You're right. Yeah, one under Mike Ruddock and then three under Gatland. So, I mean, I, I do, never... you, do, you, do you consider them to be a sort of more like, you know, higher highs, lower lows? Yeah, and the evidence of results, and I, I disagree with, like, I agree with you that the public loves winners, and I, I never I never know what Gaddy, how much of what he's saying is honest and what is for public consumption, and how much of what he's saying is calculated and for his own team's consumption or for the opposition consumption, but allow me for the fact, see, he said it before the World Cup, he was talking about the different teams that he coached, he talked about coaching Ireland, and, you know, echoed, Stuart Ancaster echoed a lot of what he said about the Irish guys are very coachable. They're, they're really, like, whatever you tell them to do, they'll really, um, they really get into the detail. They really apply themselves. They'll question more. They're from that educated background. He goes, the English, like, coaching them in Wasps is that they have this real belief of their place, place in the world. Like, they really believe they can win things. They believe they're the best in the world. Um, they have this massive confidence, whereas the Welsh, he goes, like, there's an awful lot of soldiers and public servants and, like, the Welsh will really, like, the Welsh will run through a brick wall for you. And I think Gatlin got that from his team. I think particularly got more pronounced with the older that, like, when I consider sort of his, what I was, his 2011 team, his 2011 generation, rather, of uh, Jamie Roberts and Fallatow and Warburton and uh, Priestland so and Nidiot. And these guys penny. who he, half penny, like these guys who he sort of, like George North, all these guys who he picked when they were very, very young and gave them their opportunity. Like 
seriously, seriously talented. Whereas look at the team that reached the semi-final of the most recent World Cup, and I would say comparatively much less ability, but worked and worked and worked. So almost two teams there, and that was... But to answer your question, shortly I would go, yeah, I think I think he did, like he obviously had higher highs and lower lows, and I think he sort of tapped into the the Welsh ability to score tries, and if you beat England, all things are possible in Wales. Well, I think the key one for I, don't, I think the Welsh ability to score tries is is moot. I would say I think their Welsh defence was the one what 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 won them their last Grand Slam. Beating England for Wales is like. Once they beat England, they're going to win a Grand Slam. I went over to Wales to watch their coronation. And I, I knew in the, in the back, middle and front of my head that we weren't going to win. I went over and saw us win in the under-20s as well. But once Wales beat England, it's like they're going to win the championship. That is, uh, it's a much more potent rivalry than the crunch is now uh, and the Welsh gets it's also far more <clears throat> one side in terms of the emotional impact it delivers it used to be that the crunch was a 50-50 split and the, the, the emotional impact went to the team who won if England beat Wales they're like yeah we beat Wales we're still England we're so great if Wales beat England it's like fucking Grand Slam <laughs> yeah, they are going to win the see, Grand that's Slam that's the thing is if Wales beat England it's going to be a Grand Slam if we beat England it's like Grand championship was great, no matter what. We can lose the other three, the other four. Funny enough, I never felt that. And I'm also, I'm odd in that, like, I'm, like, you're playing for the trophy, win the championship first. Obviously, winning five games is better than winning four. But uh, you're, you're in a championship, so win the championship. It doesn't matter to me. I, it, it doesn't hurt my feelings or dampen the fucking year if we don't win the the Grand I, I, Slam and we win the trophy. Like I be with, I be with you. I agree with you. I think if we beat Scotland, Italy, and England, it's a good year. Yeah, I think. I think that's. I think that's. That's what my gut tells me. Okay. Well, one. Just uh, this is. We'll I'd wrap up. I'd ra- wrap I, up yeah. this bit on talking about Ireland before we move on to uh, something else. But one of my big expectations along the line, uh, the lines is the transformation from the Joe Schmidt kind of team that you were just discussing, is that I think Ireland's penalty count will absolutely spike this tournament. And I think it'll be it'll take a lot of getting used to for both the players and the watching public to be like, why are we constantly putting ourselves on the back foot? Because our discipline was one of the cornerstones of how we were a difficult team to beat. We didn't give teams three points and we didn't give them position. And I think if it's going to be more about boot, bite and bollock and less about being cerebral, that's definitely one of the things that's going to be suffering the most. Well, very good I, point. I absolutely agree with your point about the our outstanding discipline during the Schmidt era being a real building block for him. But with the exception I, of the Japan match, where for some reason we just gave away ten penalties in a row. I was, can't figure that out. <laughs> strange old game. Uh, but why do you think that we'll start giving away? Do you think that Andy Farrell's just going to say, lads, you know, the most important thing here is to sow it into them? Don't worry about penalties for the first half hour. Is that you think what he's going to say? I think there's going to be an increased emphasis on possession. I also think that there's generally just going to be a huge emphasis on uh, contact, the like type of contact, and that's going to lead to more penalties just in general. 
Uh, what, like high tackles? Yes, yeah, yeah. And like, people being like, oh, it's just high, but you know, it's a penalty. Or it's like, oh, that's a bit of contact with the, the shoulder and jaw. That's a yellow or a red. Yeah. Or was there any mitigation? That's a bit of contact like, with the old chin bone there. I think there's going to be a lot of that. I think, I do think, I definitely think the Irish team were hugely cognizant of not giving away penalties because I think they were scared of getting balled out of it by Joe if they did let the team discipline down. Yeah. And I don't think that's going to... I don't think Farrell's going to go out and say, just go and smash them, lads, see we'll get away with the first three minutes. If, if, but if it, if it slips down the priority rank and aggression and imposing yourself physically and dominant tackles are higher up the priority rank, then... You know, you can't just keep the discipline at the same level. It's going to go down. There's going to be more penalties. Yeah. I think I think that's it's a, a side which I hadn't considered at all. You've made a, a strong argument there. I think uh, I think you're you're probably right. Someone needs to stop him. Referee blows for half time. Uh, England head coach Eddie Jones promised to introduce France's bright young things to the unforgiving reality of Test Match Rugby by unleashing a brutal physicality against Les Bleus at Stade de France on Sunday. That's the opening paragraph of an article by Daniel Schofield from The Telegraph. Um, brutal, <laughs> brutal physicality against a load of young lads from the under-20s. Uh, it sounds like the recipe for a big fight, if you ask me. Um you have some opinions about the young upcoming French team, I believe. I think that um what's his Galtier is a they couldn't bring themselves to pick a non French coach. Like the Vern Vern Cotter Joe Schmidt was one of the potentials given their time in Claremont. Uh, uh, Cotter's time in Montpellier and like that New Zealand discipline about them, right? So that that was that was the most obvious overseas combo or overseas appointment. One of those two guys, and like France being France, they just decided, no, no, cannot do that. Um, and like some of their like a lot of their previous coaching appointments, uh, San Andre, who actually won a premiership with Sale, if I'm not yeah, mistaken. Yeah, you're right, two thousand six. Standingly, you know, notably unsuccessful apart from that, but like that alone is, is quite a result. Um, Lievremont, Brunel having coached 10, was he the coach for their last Six Nations success? San Andre, yeah, or was that the first? Lievremont, I think, won something in his first season, won a Grand Slam, I think, in his first season. Okay. But like these, sorry, these guys were coming from, um, not that level of consistency. Like, they weren't all complete mugs. Like, Brunel had been good at Perpignan. He coached internationally. Um, Guinoves. Guinoves, I think, was a bit past it, but, yeah. like, you know, has a an incredible, history. a storied history. So, I, and was probably, was, I would say Guinoves was probably too isolated politically that he was so to lose he'd, he'd been so dominant against everyone else that he wasn't going to get the support of the hierarchy and my, my feeling is that Galtier and Laporte as a combo and particularly with France hosting the World Cup the next World Cup um, I think politically it's it's a very powerful I think Galtier is a very good coach I think that Laporte is 
more powerful than Gauthier is a good coach. So I think like if, if Laporte wants this to happen, this is going to happen. This bloke, I mean, the bloke's been, like he's been captain, was he captain of France? He definitely, he definitely played for France. He won a Bouclier. Uh, he coached Laporte oh, as Laporte. a player. Yes, yeah. Uh, he coached, uh, like he changed a Parisian team into into a national power as a coach. He coached France uh, for a long time, like for eight seasons. He won Grand Slams. He got them into uh, World Cup, definitely semis, if not finals. And then he became a minister. Uh, he's got his own vineyard, and now he's a power broker in France. Like Bernard Laporte is a mover and shaker. He's came real, back and, and took the reins of Toulon as well. Came back and took the reins of Toulon. So he's, he's a real operator. And then I think you look at Galtier, who's been in... Uh, like three boucliers he was the first world player of the year he's a former captain of France uh, four world cups four world cups that like a really that's a really accomplished duo and then you take the French team the genesis of sort of the building blocks of which have won two junior world cups back to back but even without that even without the junior world cups like referring to the, the earlier discussion France have so many good players that they could field two international teams and like there wouldn't be much between France A and France B. Like it would depend who'd be playing at home. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you love that. <laughs> and the uh, so the the idea, the idea that like all of a sudden England France is going to get physical is, to my mind, like it's just absolute media nonsense. That match is always physical. Like if it's. If it's nothing else, it's physical. Um, so it's... It could be... The unfortunate thing for Irish rugby is that it could be the reinstatement of that fixture as Le Crunch. Because I remember looking at it in 2012 uh, where you're sort of looking at Bill Bowman getting involved with and and Richie coming involved. Like Bill Bowman's... Uh, was on his way moving up to World Rugby and they were going to host the World Cup. Uh, it's like Bill was there to sort of go between the, the clubs and the professional game in order to make sure that 2015 was a success. Richie was coming in with uh, like football and then a tennis background, like a real commercial sports background. They made the decision with Lancaster, which is probably lower profile than they wanted to make, but they couldn't find anybody else and they found an English coach. And Stuart Lancaster is a really, really good coach, as, as, as we know. Um, and you could see the fact that by getting all their ducks in a row, the, the English were going to be strong. So while we'd beaten England like for probably more in the preceding decade than we'd ever beaten them, we're sort of going, mm. Jesus, great fun beating England every year or more than every second year. Now all of a sudden you're kind of going, ooh, that's, that's, gonna, that's probably going to stop. And now I, 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 I sort of fear that the same thing is going to happen with the French and it's going to be kind of going, I'll be at France at home. Well, they'd be an absolutely sh- shambolic. So they, they play all right for 25 minutes and then they'll just like shoot themselves in the foot. I kind of fear that those days are coming to an end, Agreed. which makes the Six Nations much tougher. And it's not like it's, it doesn't, like it, it doesn't change the fundamentals of Irish rugby. It just makes it much more difficult for Ireland to be successful. Yeah. Getting back to when we beat England, in the, in the, the noughties, basically. Like, we beat them in 2004. Did we beat them five, six, and seven? Did we beat them four times in a row? We certainly did in six and seven, because those were the two years that we just didn't win the, 
the uh, Grand Slam, but we won the Triple Crown in both years. In 2005, did we have two losses in 2005? We lost to Wales in the last game. Yeah, we weren't going for a, a Grand Slam, so we must have. Yeah, but I mean, I think I think we I think we and beat then we England. We won them in we beat England in nine and ten. Yeah, like we 11. beat England. We beat England in Twickenham in two thousand and ten. We beat England yeah. in Twickenham in two thousand and four. We beat them uh, in two thousand and six. Shaggy. We beat them in six. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, in eight, mm. Cipriani came on and beat us. Uh, or yeah, that was Cipriani. Then yeah. right started, and then Garrity came on. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Like so, like we we beat England a lot. In the noughties. Yeah, absolute Celtic Tiger. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I, I think that uh, I, I wouldn't disregard the French success at underage uh, in the Junior World Cups. Uh, I think that's going to be the building block of their, of their future success. Uh, combining that achievement and knowledge that they are the best in the world, two different age groups, with a fully professional setup with an outside uh, France coach in in Sean Edwards and the backing of the entire French state for a home tournament. So I I think they're going to be, like when I look at their, their, the back line that they can field at the moment between Penno, Teddy Thomas and the wings, Vakatawa, Roman Antelak and Dupont, um, Jesus, they are so talented. They're so fucking talented. Well, nobody galvanizes for a home tournament like the French, I think it's fair to say. Uh, one of the sort of persistent problems though, over all the time, it has appeared to me at least, over all the time that France have been sort of like a seasick kind of team, is that they've had, they have too many players. Uh, and th- there's often been this sort of yeah. feeling that Ireland, uh, while you could never, n- never uh, say that they could feel two teams they could always feel like 23 and you'd pretty much know maybe there, there was out of 30 you're picking. Whereas with France, there seemed to be like a rolling string of outhalves with a different fucking fatal flaw that always got exposed. Like whether it was Bozies for a while or I don't know, any of the other ones. Misha um, like or Yeah. And then they'd be like, oh, well, he shits the bed under pressure, or he can't kick, or he. But he's got all these other. He's got all these other things. He takes great drop goals, but he can't do this. And you, England used to have the same problem, except <clears throat> England picked a team. Lancaster f- formed a team, and it's been pretty much the same team England since then. Yeah, well, what you're expressing there is the the difference between the cohesion of a century contracted system. And the opportunity of a league system. So they have this incredibly. That's more than just a league system. It's an abundance of players. It's the population size and the number of rugby players that they both have. Yeah, you know. But you also have so many different teams competing. You've like fourteen different teams, as you say. uh, Just a huge number of players. But they have this role, and that's their major competition. It's not like they're waiting around to see who plays well in the in you know the six games of the European pools see well that's the real standard so if you get selected in this game and you play well that means you're in contention like for them their roiling season is like well you played well for two games around the league you know you've put yourself up you've jumped over the next three open sides that used to be ahead of you who haven't played as well so that roiling system of a league where everything is always in turmoil 
uh, I think is detrimental to the cohesiveness of the national side. And as a result, you need a very strong, very strong coach to say, I'm essentially going to select from 40 players, you know, and it's going to be harder to break into that 40 than it is to fall out of that 40. You can't reward everyone who has four good games in a row. I suppose as well, the key thing is to start winning loads of games so you don't want to change it. A good point, yeah. Which absolutely is, which what England started doing under Lancaster. They didn't win. They didn't bring home the titles, but they they were winning uh, like four games out of five in every Six Nations. Yeah, for four Six Nations in a row. And then they were touring well enough. The other thing that's just struck me is that the... The arena of French uh, rugby changed. Now, like they, they were, they were really good in the noughties. Um, You know, reached the World Cup final in nineteen ninety nine. Basically, Stade de France was built for the ninety eight World Cup, and then in nineteen ninety nine, France reached the World Cup final in two thousand and seven. They were in a semi. They were in a semi final in two thousand and three, beaten well, by yeah. England. They hosted in two thousand and seven, which is an underperformance. So, they had all this with Stade Francais, but Laporte. Famously called the famously called the Parisian crowd like uh, bourgeois shits in like who attended in the Stade Francais and it, it's always been quite a, quite a dull venue. Whereas the Parc de Prince was and still is an absolutely wonderful stadium. The uh, they also used to go and play in the Velodrome. Yeah, they used to go and play in the Velodrome, and which is where the European Cup final is. But the the match the the stadium where Ireland played Japan was a Kakagawa. One of you know the yeah, Yacopa yeah, yeah. Stadium. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That really reminded me of uh, Parc de Prince in like the the echo going around and the amount of concrete that was there, mm. like in the the sort of the the, the size of the stadium. Um, so I think much like Farrell's quote, going back to that sort of idea, like the French rugby team has to connect with the French support base. Like I remember as a kid, and like you the you're never going to see this comeback. But like they used to bring over cockerels to Lansdowne Road and just let them run yeah, loose. Yeah, throw them onto the every, bench. Every second year. Um, and it was just a matter of time. And like, you know, the hen would be running around and he'd be sort of, you'd have uh, red, white and blue. Like, there's no way you'd be allowed to do that now or you'd get away with it now or like, you know, public. But people used to love it. Mm. And like, just... I'd forgotten that, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was never actually one, at one of those. I saw them on television. Yeah. And the so... There's quite there's quite a lot for French rugby to do in order to to sort of capture the hearts and minds of the French rugby public. I think because I think there's uh, they've been unsuccessful for too long. But I remember as well um, when Laporte's team were successful that there was quite a lot of criticism of him and his anglification of the French style and saying oh. He's not. It's not the same as when we had, you know, Cela Blanco. Why aren't these players gouging? <laughs> <laughs> Why aren't I, I remember that he he picked. Uh, he used to pick his his centers were Josian, who nobody complained about. Troy, who loads of people complained about, and Tony Marsh, who everyone liked, but sort of going, oh, he's in New Zealand. Why are we picking him? Uh, he, he he implemented a, a, quite a straightforward style. Uh, compared to the teams in the late 80s, early 90s, they were prosaic. But they were so successful. They were so difficult to fucking beat. 
think there were three three Grand Slams under under him. Certainly two. It's funny that the French Grand Slams always seem much harder to remember. And, and in a sense, I think it's because as Irish fans of a certain vintage, uh, France were like the Brazil of rugby. Yeah. And they were just like, oh, they're just way better. They're classier. And they've like this, they're a huge country and there's loads of them and they'll always be really good. And so you'd be like, oh, if they won the championship, you know, if they beat England, they probably won the championship. You know? Yeah. And you didn't really, you weren't really counting the Grand Slams, whereas every Grand Slam that Wales have won has felt like a dagger to the heart. And <clears throat> England getting close to uh, being denied so many of them so many times has, has, you know, felt, they've all felt like very reassuring that like that's something that still needs to be stopped at mm. all costs. And, you know, any one of the Celtic nations will lay their body down on the yeah. on the train tracks to do it. Um, whereas with France, you just ever got, they went, they, they, you know, the, their Grand Slams just do not seem memorable at all to me. Yeah, the one that I remember is the one where they fell over the line. Maybe that was uh, Lievermont's one. He did win it in 2010. Yeah. 12-10. He won it in 2020. Laporte won Grand Slams in 2002, 2004, finished top of the championship, six and seven. Okay, so two, yeah. Uh, left the role after eight years to become a secretary of state in Sarko's government. Um, I okay, so we haven't got those teams yet. Uh, but let's launch into some wild general predictions. I've yes, already, I, I've already said, uh, I said off mic, but I, I said Ireland penalty count will spike, and I expect us, I expect someone in the Ireland Scotland match to get a red card, and not through anything particularly malicious. Just through some kind of like no mitigating circumstances. Yeah. Sorry, but you're gone. Like a shoulder to the chin, yeah. like a Will Skelton yeah. type thing. Yeah. Yeah. Or Reese Carey, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I could see that. I think Ireland were going to win quite comfortably. I think handsomely, not handsomely, comfortably. Is yeah. Right. 30 points to 10. That's literally the exact figure that is in my head. Um, Do you have a anything, any, any, anything for the Ireland Scotland game? I think I think it'll be closer because it'll be higher scoring because we let Scotland into the game more. So I'd I'd be like twenty eight, twenty two, un- uncomfortably close, mm-hmm. and possibly that uh, um, <clears throat> the Hastings. Yeah, I think, we'll Hastings, think I think yeah. he'll be I think he'll be pretty impressive. I think he's a pretty good player. Uh, and then France versus England. I think uh, England are going to win that. I'm impressed with England. Billy Van Pollen's a huge loss. A little bit blasé about that earlier, maybe off mic, I can't remember. Uh, but England has so many good players, so many proven internationals uh, throughout the team. In every unit, they have good players. So I think England will win in a... Uh, I think it's going to be like 26-17 to England. Uh, I think it's going to be a really good match, and it's going. To, it is going to. It is going to be the first resumption of uh, a proper Le Crunch. As you like recall from last year, England fucking annihilated France last year. I don't think it's going to be anything like that this year. I think Vunapol is an enormous loss. I think himself and Tuilagi are the most influential players in that team, more so than Owen Farrell and Otoje. More so than Otoje? Yeah, yeah. I think that I think Tuilagi, I think like South Africa didn't allow stroke stop Tuilagi 
uh, in the final, whereas he was utterly dominant against New Zealand and, and everything that they did revolved around him and the Vunapolos, but more so Billy than, than Maro. And I told you it was great against the All Blacks. Yeah, he was. And like, so was Farron and so was Underhill and so was Curry. But I think that I go back to that Dean Richards idea, like without uh, Matt, without a Billy. Not a center. Uh Laggy. Yeah. Getting them over. Like Laggy is, is fundamental to the way Eddie Jones plays. Now they they've had a change of attack coach. So he's going to be playing again and we'll see how fit he gets. Uh but he was he was he was brilliant during the World Cup. So I think that the difference in this French team I, I, I think France are gonna win. I think the difference is gonna be that they're gonna have enough discipline and enough of an idea about what they need to be doing up to 65 minutes that they'll still be in the match. And at that stage, I think that'll engage the crowd. It doesn't matter how they play, as long as they're as long as they're still in the match in 65 minutes, because the French, I don't think the French expect to beat England mm-hmm. this time. But I think France expect to beat England sort of at home all the time, you know, in a sort of, in a, in a wider, longer, in a historical sense, yeah, and general yeah. sense. And I think if they're in it in 65 minutes, the French, I still think no matter how, how good or bad or disciplined the French are, that... If you're Ireland and you're in and after 65 minutes, the French get worried because that's not the way it's meant to be. And if you're French and you're in it after 65 minutes against the Kiwis or the English, you think you'll win it because you're France. Hmm. You've you've weathered the storm and like you're just better. You're better I mean, than everyone. Well, the, uh, Apart from maybe the Germans, you know, you sort of have that nagging debt in your head, but like you're better than everyone else. You're, yeah, not ironic is the right word. Um, Sorry, ironic. Uh, I guess the coincidental thing is that at 65 minutes... Uh, in October, I was sitting in my hotel room in, I can't remember if it was in, I must have been in Japan, in Tokyo. And I was, I think I texted you two and said, this one point defeat by France will be heartbreaking when they were six points up against yeah. Wales. Oh, yeah, so yeah. 15 minutes yeah. left. And it was like, there's nothing more nailed on than them fucking this up. Yeah. And then I know the referee didn't really do them any favors because that was, Certain knock on in that try. Nevertheless, they contributed they, they most with themselves. Though. They would have found another way to concede a try if yeah. they had a five years from there. So, can they change? Can that? Can Galtier uh, reverse that kind of irreversible slide that they were? That's seemingly irreversible slide that they were on. Short answer is yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I, it's a rhetorical question, I guess, but I, I, I think it's it's what he's. It's what a guy like him building up to a World Cup in France uh, is there to do. And as much as I don't think Ireland should be going 2023 World Cup, France is exactly what they should be doing because they love a World Cup at home. Yeah. We would have loved to have that World Cup at home as well. (laughs) One of those almost unstoppable French surges of power and skill and pace. And Patrice Lagisquet... Makes it 19 tries for France for him. No stopping the Bayonne Express. Well, that's playing Italy as well. And uh, apparently you want to talk about it. Yeah, I do. I think it's fascinating. Firstly, I can't recall in the five or six nations era, one coach having had his tenure as long as Warren Gatland. So that's going to leave an enormous shadow, just as it's difficult for players to replace uh, a true great like Richie McCaw. You know, there was always super number sevens knocking around New Zealand while Richie McCall was there. 
now that he's left, they've had a number of different ones. Gallon is going to be so hard to replace for Wales. Pivac has proved himself as an outstanding club coach. He had the Scarlets playing a wonderful brand of rugby, really beautiful brand of rugby. Had kind of only for one season, though. Well, two seasons. Yeah. Uh, you know, light on their feet, brilliant handling, really abrasive at the breakdown. Uh, great tacklers. Like, there's so much to admire about it. Okay, but... Can you transfer that yeah, to the yeah. international game with limited time with your players? I think that Gatlin's Warren Ball on Sean Edwards' invention of defence, those are very pejorative terms I'm describing to us. Gatlin gave his teams a simple game plan and absolutely mentally empowered them. Uh, and Sean Edwards gave them very... Very simple um, game plan and defense, and, and bullied them into greatness. That, having stroke lost those led, two stroke coaches, led them, yeah, led them, stroke bullied them, like yeah. So I think that those things are going to be irreplaceable. And Pivac is a really good coach, but I think his game is so nuanced that it's going to be hard to transfer to international level in one season. I think as well, like a lot of the Welsh players haven't really played any, haven't played any rugby of significance since the World Cup. Uh, and I, I, I refer to it last week and refer to it again this week that whatever people think about Irish and the central contracting situation and like, you know, how competitive is the league, you could well justifiably say that it's because the Welsh, <laughs> the Welsh don't bother with the league. The Welsh team is like, the Welsh rugby is set up to provide the Welsh, to provide the Welsh national team and like the rest of it can go to hell. Um, so like you've had the Ospreys guys coming back just before just after Christmas for the derby matches uh, back rows like Moriarty and Tipperick not playing a lick of rugby Jonathan Davies is injured so allied to that Ian Williams is out as well since the World Cup isn't he? yeah he yeah. Has, he played yeah. so I still obviously still expect Wales to win and win quite well but then the Italians are degrade underachievers and I think you have to say that Conor O'Shea was not the man to be a first team coach uh, but we'll see what he did like their under 20s results were obviously better I always think that the Italians have the capability to be competitive because they've a they've a strong pack and if you have a strong pack like you know that's much more important than anything else um, they're still in the same situation where they lack halfbacks um, of of any reasonable stripe and there's been nothing coming up in, in either Treviso or Zebra that find a fucking Argentinian to do the job for them so. yeah you'd sort of think wouldn't you um, that has but y- you want to see what Franco Smith does with the coach and the fact that they're post Parise uh, and almost the fact that they can't get any worse like what will happen not quite post Parise yet he's getting not, a he's, he's playing, he's playing yeah. against the English isn't he yeah, yeah okay well you know, the, the he long... He deserves it after the fucking screw job in the World Cup. The long, the long Arriva... The Montreal screw job. <laughs> the long chow, <laughs> otherwise known as the Arriva Dirty. He gave a screw job. So, but... but, but so it doesn't have the capability of being a surprise. You would like to see the Italians become more awkward. Not aspirational, like just Benetton. awkward. Yeah, like Like Benetton. Yeah. Just big and physical. Benetton are a pain hard to, to play. Hard to play against. Really, really hard to play against. And competitive and scrappy all the way through. 
And there's good players like Campanero, Marisi, the fast wingers. They just don't have the halfbacks to, mm. to tie it together. Yeah, Tobaldi's. I was impressed with Tobaldi against Lancer in the recent fixture. Mm. I felt he was really. Uh, He's a scrum half. Yeah. Oh, what I, an arsehole. Yeah, really <laughs> fucking hard to play against. Uh, I felt that he covered the pitch brilliantly, made yeah. loads of tackles. Uh, that his kicking out of hand was very good, and he was just super abrasive. Very good beard as well. Very dense. 